0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this very special seminar that we are pleased to have together with OTGR, which is our research seminars, uh, our research group. Um, and we normally host seminars at this time slot, but today we have, um, as you can see, many special guests with us because we have the pleasure of hosting this with the Refugee Law and Migration uh, Discussion Group. Um, we are very happy and pleased to have with us uh, Ruby Ziegler, which um, who is gonna present about his new book. I will keep this very short because we have uh, many guests and I don't want to take up more time than necessary. I'm just gonna say a few words about our research group. Uh, at the TGR we deal with issues of transitions in society uh, that are moving from a violent past, so a democrat- a dictatorial uh, past or, a, or, a, or a societies characterized by widespread human rights violations to peace and reconciliation so we deal with issues of justice but also with issues of uh, truth and reparations and uh, guarantees of no repetition Um, we are uh, an interdisciplinary group based here at the center for criminology and we really make a point of keeping it as uh, varied as possible so if you come from another faculty we're really happy to have you here and we hope to see you again, because we have many different speakers from all sorts of disciplines. And we'll try to keep this an open discussion. Uh, we will open many positions within our committee uh, at the end of this week. So if you're happy to get involved more and you like the kind of work that we're doing, uh, please go to our website, which is here. Uh, there is a, a newsletter, a signing form, do it. Uh, we will send you further details. We have many exciting activities that we carry out. Uh, Alongside this seminar series we have an editorial team that works on a website called justiceinfo.net where we deal with issues of uh, transitional justice in society recovering, uh, where we have journalists in regions that are uh, undergoing transitional justice processes and uh, we provide academic background to this. So many exciting opportunities. Um, please follow us. And I will not uh, take up any more time. I wanna give the floor to Yulia, who is here on behalf of the Thanks. Refugee and Migration Law Discussion Group. I will say a few words in the group and then we can begin with our discussion. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, thank you very much, Lisa. Yes, thank you, everyone. Uh, we're coming
1: Refugee and Migration Law Discussion Group is a work for the session all and any issues of refugee law. Very law and immigration law, and we are also very interdisciplinary. We invite uh, speakers from a variety of backgrounds, uh, including internationally renowned uh, scholars, and academics, activists, and uh, practitioners. We also welcome offers to present uh, papers and uh, work in progress, so uh, please uh, let uh, us know if you want to present something. Uh, we usually have two events per term. This is our first event. Uh, our second event uh, will Place on 16 November, uh, and our speaker will be Amanda Weston, who is a barrister at Garden Court Chambers. Uh, She will talk about child uh, refugee rights in public law. And if you want to know more information about our discussion group and about our events, please uh, uh, check out our microsite on Law Faculty's website, and there you can find information about how to sign up for our mailing list or. about our Facebook page. Thank you very much. and I.
0: Thank you. you. So I just remind you that the conversation will last for about 45 minutes. We will open then the floor to a Q&A. Um, the, the presentation will be recorded, but the Q&A will not be recorded. So if you have any pressing question and you want to push our speakers, please do so um, without fear of retaliation. <laughs> and then I, uh, I will move uh, to uh, our chair today, we, which we have the privilege of having with us, uh, Layora Lazarus is an uh, associate professor and fellow of St. Anne's College uh, and uh, we are really happy that she could join us um, and she will uh, make the honour of introducing all the other speakers today. Thank you very much, Layora, for being with us. Thank you to everyone.
2: Well, welcome everybody to this wonderful joint initiative between OTJR and the Refugee Studies Centre. Um, I'm um, Liora Lazarus and I work in, um, nothing to do with this actually, um, I work in, the, in security and human rights, it's got everything to do with it, but, uh, but um, my role here will be to chair the event and to hand over to everybody and take questions at the end. Um, so I first met Ruby um, a, a long time ago when he walked into my office to have his, his um, MPhil examined in... Um, in, uh, on this question of voting rights. It hadn't evolved into this work, but I was so excited to read this book when I, I sat over the weekend to go through some of these theoretical frameworks. It's an extraordinary piece of work, and I think that, that we, you know, I'm struggling to finish a book at the moment, and it's it's, it's a terrible experience, and congratulations. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's the worst possible scenario, but Ruby has, Ruby has finished this scenario. book and, and, and published it much to... Um, Our benefit. Um, So, welcome Ruby back to Oxford, and um, he will start by giving us a a presentation of his um, book, and then we will move on to um, Kirsten McConaughey from Warwick. Welcome, thank you. And also, then to Matthew Gibney from the Refugee Studies Centre. So, enough about that, let's move on to Ruby.
3: Fantastic. Uh, okay. Um, thanks very much, um, everyone, for coming. Um, can I start by by thanking uh, Daniel and Julia and indeed Mayan, who's can't see her here, mm-hmm. as well, uh, from respectively OTA, OTA, uh JRJ, JRG, rather, and the Refugee Migration Discussion Group for putting this together. Uh, and thank um, Kirsten, Leora, and, and Matt uh, for being here. Um, this is... Um, I mean, I think the, the book really tries to bring together themes from law and other disciplines of which I had less awareness uh, before starting the research. Uh, hopefully um, I've done so in a, in a way that doesn't generate uh, too crushing a critique, but we'll see, uh, we'll see what we get uh, to people who are experts in those fields. Um, what I want to do is, um, as you can see here, uh, you, can, you can tweet um, to CUP and, and to myself um, and uh, try and increase book sales, of which there are also flyers here with a 20% discount, so uh, do make use of this. Um, what I'll start by doing is just, just giving really a, an overview of the context, the legal context of the book, and then the... Um, the structure of the book, so the different, the different chapters, different um, components. I'm not going to go into the full-length argument, not least because I, uh, I think the, the main interest of mine at the very least is not to hear myself, but to hear uh, our commentators and, and um, to get your questions. But I'm very happy to elaborate on themes that will arise from the rather more descriptive elements that I'll start with. Uh, as, as the discussion proceeds. And, and I think the, the starting point for me is really to think about um, the context for the book as what I call a journey from Hein Weizmann to Hannah Arendt. And what I mean by this is the distance, as you were, the legal distance um, and the political distance between those two quotes that you see um, on your screen. The first one uh, being one that Hein Weizmann um, was uh, was recorded as noting before the Royal, the Palestine Royal Commission convened in 1937 um, at the time of the Arab revolt in British Mandate Palestine, and that was a time, of course, when uh, the Third Reich was already um, in place in Germany, was threatening other countries, uh, and who started fleeing um, various countries in Europe, not not least uh, specifically Germany, and and he made. A rather somber um, uh, statement or or, or observation saying that for refugees the world is divided into places into which where they cannot live and places into which they cannot enter Um, and if you think about that statement um, that is really a statement that encapsulates the notion of state sovereignty being one that entails um, the right for states um, or the presumed right for states under international law um, to determine the entry to residence um, and the expulsion from their territory of those who were not their citizens. Um, and the fact that at the time, uh, there was no built-in, as you were, internationally binding exception that applied across um, continents and across cases. There were various ad hoc, specific regimes that preceded uh, the Second World War, uh, but none that had the sort of Um, um, global appeal, as you were, uh, that the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees coupled with the 1967 protocol, which expanded its application globally, um, that is to refugees um, outside Europe as well, and beyond that 1951 timeline. Um, That um, was in many ways a consequence uh, of um, the horrible events of the Holocaust and other um, um, travesties um, in the second world war and beyond and displacements that ensued and so we kind of move to um, that other quote from 1951 the Hannah End quote and that quote um, really I think encapsulates the position that somebody was a recognized refugee as indeed she was uh, until she naturalized and we can talk later about naturalization why uh, or in what ways this plays into the the frameworks that I propose, Um, the position was that somebody who is granted refugee status finds herself or himself in. Um, And what she was um, trying to suggest in this quote is that what she described as the fundamental deprivation of human rights is manifested first and foremost in a deprivation of a place in the world which makes opinions significant and actions effective. And by this, she... Um, I think, describe the significance of being an individual who is also a political being within a political community, in a world that is divided into different political communities self governing. Um, at that stage, not all the world was self governing, but with a view to this becoming um, the prevailing position. And, and, and it's that disjuncture between having been granted protection from persecution, um, but having been left then um, with an absence of political presence anywhere in the world, that uh, I think enticed me into thinking about this issue uh, from um, the legal and, as you were, political theory perspective. And so the legal framework that applies to this project and and, and has a self-limiting character um, and it's not intended, and I, I should say this at the start, it's not intended to suggest that the, argument, uh, the argument's force is necessarily only limited to people who fall within um, the refugee convention definition, uh, but rather to say that the argument is, is the strongest in relation to this group uh, and it becomes to some extent um, less strong as you move away from that into other categories uh, of forced migration for reasons I, I can get to in discussion. Um, so the framework is one of the 1951 convention, uh, of which there are 147 member states, and it is of a state of asylum, because this, this project very much addresses itself primarily to the state of asylum, uh, which, is signif- which is generally a treaty-compliant state of asylum. Um, all states um, may have problems in the way they implement the convention, um, but... Um, the assumption for, for the book is that the obligations that they already undertake under the treaty are ones that they generally meet. And it is that gap in the scope of obligation that they have under the treaty that the project seeks to explore in relation to the question of electoral rights. Uh, and so the temporal framework for the analysis is one where recognition has already happened, but the person who has been recognized as a refugee, remains a recognized refugee to the exclusion of a different status in that state. And that is, that is a significant point for the purposes of the discussion. So uh, I can return to the refugee definition uh, later at length, but it's just worth minding, uh, or worth noting rather, that for somebody to meet the refugee, definition, being a declarative status, being one that um, one meets by meeting the definition, um, not by by virtue uh, of having been recognized as such, or somebody is a refugee because they meet this definition, requires that somebody will be outside their state of origin, have a well-founded fear of persecution for one or more of the five convention grounds, and crucially for the purposes of discussion of their political predicament be unable or unwilling to avail him or herself of the protection of that state, as you were, both internally within the state of residence, hence the reason why um, they um, were forced to leave and can't return, but also, importantly, externally. That is, when they are outside their country of nationality but remains potentially nationals of that state. And it's against that background that the book makes essentially two normative, two interrelated normative claims. The first is that it situates uh, recognized refugees as what I call a special category of non-citizen residents. So within the group of, uh, you might say, roughly 3% uh, of the world's population who, according to um, the International Organization for Migration, are Um, living um, not on a transient basis, basis, rather, outside their country uh, of birth. Um, So um, so roughly 200 million. Within that group, the group of refugees, and I I can have figures that I can show later, are a special category of non-citizen residents. And the reason they are a special category is because what they lack, pursuant to, and as a result of, the sort of status... That, they, that, that recognition entails, is what I call full membership in a political community for, and this is the key element, for an indetermined and indeed ex ante unknown period of time. That is, to put um, more simply, on the day in which a state of asylum recognizes a person as a convention refugee, neither that state nor that person knows how long that status will be held. Um, and so, and so the consequence of that, that status could be short-term, but can be uh, a very long-term status as well. Um, and given that the Refugee Convention sets a list of very exhaustive um, number of criteria under which um, that status may come to an end, um, except for one, which is the um, award of the citizenship of another state, and that would, would usually but not always be the state of asylum. All the other conditions are conditions that are outside the hands of the state of asylum when it grants somebody refugee status, um, and indeed entail some form of either legal uh, or factual, or both uh, changes in the circumstances. And so from this it follows, based on the political predicaments that I'll try and sketch out. That it is desirable, and I say desirable because I identify in this project a gap in the framework within international refugee law coupled with international human rights law. There is a gap um, that is it is normatively desirable to fill by states treating refugees that they have recognized, so states of asylum, treating refugees that they have recognized as if they were their citizens... In respect of those rights or entitlements, that international law generally suggests that states may (coughs) subject to a citizenship qualification, right? On the assumption that generally human rights law would not allow distinctions to be drawn between citizens and others who are under the state's jurisdiction, uh, leaving certain issues, most notably issues related to political rights, um, within that accepted category. And it's in relation to those where refugees are indeed a special category of non-citizen residents. And I suggest the predicament, which is which sketched out um, fundamentally throughout the book, um, is threefold. Um, the first being the idea that in a world divided into um, sovereign states, uh, where states are required to allow um, their own citizens back um, not least on the basis of the fact that those individuals cannot be forced upon the state of which they're not citizens where they currently reside. Right? That, to put it in the contemporary context, is part of the discussion around the return of um, quote-unquote Daesh fighters um, from the Middle East to the United Kingdom <coughs> to hold UK nationality. Part of the reason the UK may be required <coughs> to let people in, is, is not least the fact that the alternative is to force uh, a state of which they are not citizens to continue, as you were, to hold them. Now, but of course, in relation to refugees, the, the definition of a refugee entails ipso facto, that they have no such realizable right to return. If they were able to exercise that right, they would no longer be convention refugees, and I, uh, I discuss in the book how the Refugee Convention actually implicitly recognizes this by requiring states to issue refugees with a convention travel document, uh, which allows them to return to the issuing state, that is the state of asylum, and which is a document that they're supposed to use instead of their passport, um, if they still hold one, of their state of origin. The second um, element of the predicament, which again differentiates refugees from other non-citizens, uh, is that when they travel abroad, they have not only no recourse as a matter of fact, but no entitlement as a matter of law, again, based on the refugee definition, to the protection abroad and the diplomatic and consular assistance of their state of origin. Um, and this is an area where, in the book, I suggest that there has been significant development in international law over the last few decades, to the extent that the expectations that citizens have of their state to receive protection has taken this issue from being one that is fundamentally an interstate area with there is state discretion to one where there's much more, um, as you were, uh, ability and likelihood for individuals to seek and receive protection from their states. The European Union has a particularly Uh, intriguing uh, arrangement within this respect, uh, whereby um, if you are a uh, a citizen of one of the EU uh, member states, one of the 28 at the moment member states, and you travel outside the European Union, and there is no access to your own state's consular protection in that state, you are entitled to approach any of the other 27 consulates and receive protection. And that, to me, actually signifies the significance at least a more um, contemporary uh, human rights framework see to the idea that when somebody leaves his or her country uh, of origin, temporarily or permanently, they retain that political link to the state that in turn allows them to make demands of that state, even if they're abroad, to receive its protection. And and we see states doing this. uh, on indeed, a daily basis, in terms of extending protection to their own citizens, and then finally it 's this idea of the exclusion from potentially all uh, electoral processes, both ones that relate to their country of origin, and that is because um, despite uh, um, a real spike in the number of states, and i 'll try and i 'll show you a graph in a few minutes, um, in the number of states that allow or facilitate voting from abroad uh, of their citizens. Um, In relation to refugees, my argument is that even though they're normatively they have a very strong case to receive that form uh, of access from abroad, as a matter of law again, um, they're making use of that facility in the absence of changes in their country of origin may be construed as they're having... Uh, re-availed themselves of the protection of that state by virtue of the significance of participation in political affairs. And so what we see, and I, and I sketch out in the book, are instances in the past where participation of refugees in electoral processes has been either parallel to or immediately preceded return of individuals to countries, as you were, in a post-conflict situation. We saw this in the Balkans um, in Uh, Following the Dayton Accord, we saw this in in East Timor. We saw this to some extent, um, somewhat less successfully, in South Sudan um, with with the referendum uh, on independence of South Sudan. And the flip side being the fact that, um, as refugees, they are non-citizens in their country of asylum, suggests that because international human rights law does not require states to enfranchise non-citizens, does not prohibit them from doing so. And they, of course, are entitled and able to do so. And some of them do, but very, very few. Uh, As a matter of the 30th of October 2017, only four countries globally extend the right to vote in all elections to permanent residents, irrespective of their country of nationality. Um, And three of them do so after a fairly lengthy period residents. And so refugees may end up having been recognized as refugees in an indeterminate period of time where they hold that status in a country of asylum without having access to political participation. Um, And so the structure of the book really takes you through um, that normative argument I think in sequence. It starts by laying out those legal foundations for appraising the political predicament of recognized refugees. Um, it does so in chapter 1 by looking at what it means to be recognized as a refugee in terms of your, um, as you were, qualified um, right of non-expulsion or of, uh, of residents within that state, which is arguably stronger than that, again, of other non-citizens, based on the framework within Article 32 of the Refugee Convention. It goes on to talk about rights of 1951 Convention Refugees and that citizenship voting qualification. and The idea here being that refugees uh, in, are entitled not just to the rights under the Refugee Convention, but of course to rights under Human Rights Law more broadly, but the Human Rights Law has not taken that additional step to enfranchise um, non-citizens or to require states to enfranchise non-citizens, even in um, local government elections, one should note, with, of course, specific regional arrangements, which have gone uh, that extra mile um, in the European Union, uh, most notably. Um, the second part, then, is my uh, second part of the book, is then my uh, attempt, hopefully not too unsuccessful, to delve into um, theoretical perspectives of voting and citizenship. And so, respectively, in Chapter 3, I try to look at why is the right to vote important, as you were, are the both instrumental and intrinsic values of the right to vote and and to what extent can we tie them into the refugee predicament. Um, The second, um, um, as you were, angle of this is to look at why citizenship matters. What are the relevant theories of citizenship that play a role in, um, in turn, uh, when I look at it in chapter 5, determining um, whether citizenship voting qualifications are justified. In other words, whether, as a, as a more general rule, it makes um, legal um, sense to retain, or it makes normative sense to retain the, the current legal framework under which states are allowed to um, link voting to citizenship. And I sketch out um, three theories, as you were, a, um, an inseparability theory where the two are, are one and the same, um, a contingent theory which allows for different variations or layers uh, and one of detachment of the two where um, voting should really um, be, be contingent or other factors most dominantly on, on residents. Uh, and then finally the last chapter and, and I'll, I'll skip the the different elements that I look, uh, I look at in relation to the nexus between voting and citizenship and I'm happy to return to each one of these. Uh, in essence my argument is that The arguments that support the inseparability theory of voting and citizenship are weaker in relation to refugees and in relation to other non-citizens, and you won't be surprised to hear that the arguments that support disaggregation or detachment are stronger um, in relation to this group, most notably the lack of an exit option and the subjection to unaccountable (coughs) power or voice, so the uh, all subject to coercion principle. Um, And then finally the last part of the book builds on these normative foundations and really looks at those three layers that I've uh, I've described in terms of the predicament of refugees. So the first looking at the phenomenon of -of out-of-country voting uh, in the 51 Convention refugee context, the second at the developments in terms of the laws of diplomatic (coughs) protection and how they affect arguably a stronger case for refugees to have resort to a form of protection. And then finally, um, the case for enfranchisement uh, of recognized uh, 51 convention refugees in their countries of asylum. So just to give you an illustration, this is a list of the countries in 2016, as you were, that now have a form of facilitation of external voting for their citizens abroad. Um, So the figure now is about 119 states it was about half of that um, a decade beforehand and, uh, and given that um, I think that frames a lot of the, a lot of the argument around um, the nature of citizenship and the effect of severance of uh, political um, relations between an individual uh, and her state of origin and the need for that to be substituted by um, a similar relationship in their state of asylum I think it frames it in a uh, uh, in a stronger light. Um, so I think I shall stop here, um, and I look forward to hearing our commentators and then to the discussion on all and other matters that relate. Thank you.
2: So I'm going to pass on to Kirsten. Let's yeah. have to stay here? Like um, I'll probably just sit. Sure. Um, okay. yeah.
4: um, so, first of all, many congratulations, Ruby. It was a really fascinating book, and I think a really interesting area as something for, which hasn't really been thought about in any detail until now, and, and where there's a real possibility for constructively expanding what we think of as refugee protection. So, I found it a really interesting read. Um, and I've particularly clearly, I, I really appreciated how thoroughly and clearly you've laid out the argument. And as you said, you've combined the analysis of law with the political theories of citizenship and, and the relationship between the citizen and the state to really look at this question of who should be allowed to vote and where should they be allowed to vote. And building up to this argument that you believe it's normatively desirable that 1951 Convention refugees should be enfranchised in elections in their state of asylum. And and it's a very uh, thought-provoking argument. And I think perhaps the care that you've presented it with obscures to some extent just how radical it really is as a suggestion. Because if we begin (coughs) to think about what would it look like when we try to implement enfranchisement of refugees, I think it's clear that it could be quite challenging, Um, and you may have seen the story in yesterday's papers that the British government may be considering removing the blanket ban on prisoner voting, and you think, well, we have a very long way to go before we would accept enfranchising refugees when we're still disenfranchising um, a fairly sizable population of citizens. Uh, So another example that I was thinking of closer to home was Germany's recent elections, Mm -hmm. where I'm not quite sure with your argument how you would incorporate, many of the the Syrian refugees in Germany of course have subsidiary protection rather than 51 Convention status, so I don't know how you would consider that in your argument, but uh, certainly were they to have enfranchised refugees in that election where refugee policy was seen as so central to the election, that could have been uh, a very contentious proposal. and then another more challenging case, or a differently challenging case, uh, would be Lebanon, where again not a state party to the 51 Convention, but where the population of refugees registered with UNHCR is between 20 and 30 percent of the national population. So demographically, you have this huge population, which would have uh, a very sizable influence if it were to be participating in elections. So. I felt from the implementation aspect there are obviously very challenging asked questions, hmm. but that's the same I think with any question on refugee rights these days and doesn't necessarily mean that the argument is not an important and valid one. Uh, so The main comments I wanted to make focus on the third part of the book, this question of the political predicament in which refugees find themselves. And two real points, one was why are we focusing on countries of residence, and secondly thinking about protection implications. And As I understood it, uh, you're arguing that voting in country of residence for refugees is necessary because they're in this political predicament where they find themselves for an indeterminate period of time outside of a political community of belonging and that that protection gap can only be mitigated by participating in the country of asylum. So that was how I had uh, understood what you're saying, that the state of asylum is the only community in which there's a prospect of political participation. Um, And I wondered whether we were accepting too easily that voting in the country of origin was not possible or or not desirable. And you you look at this in some detail in Chapter 6 on out-of-country voting, and this was the chapter that uh, particularly resonated with me in terms of refugees that I've worked with, because uh, mostly my research empirically has been with refugees from Myanmar. And in yep. 2015, there was a very significant general election in which refugees were not able to vote. So this was something that uh, was struck me at the time as kind of unfair for the arguments that you're making about inability to participate in their political community, inability to participate in a very influential uh, election, and also a missed opportunity in terms of the peace building and and conflict prevention arguments, which you also raise and allude to in chapter six. So um, you mentioned that most frequently when refugees have been able to participate in out-of-country voting, it has been on the basis of peace-building, it's been on the basis of some kind of internationally supported process, often pursuant to some kind of international agreement. And so that where refugees were being able to vote in their countries of origin, it was something, as I understood it, that was more likely to be led from the outside, more likely to be led or influenced from international actors. Um, But then... You know, perhaps we're, we're, we're looking at different avenues for leverage here, So I mm. felt that participating in the country of origin seems like the political community to which refugees are most attached, and I think you mm. do recognize in the book this special relationship between state and citizen, and, and that this was superior to the surrogate protection that a refugee has in their state of asylum. So I felt that, well, are we perhaps, should we be concentrating in more detail on refugees opportunities to participate in voting in the country of origin? And, and you do explain very well and comprehensively some of the arguments why that's difficult, why the home state may not want refugees to participate in the vote, why the state of asylum may feel it was disruptive or threatening... But I felt that those ultimately came down to practical implementation challenges rather than the kind of normative arguments and and those practical implementation challenges are perhaps at least as strong if we're talking about enfranchisement and state of asylum. So I wanted to to sort of ask a little bit more about does it matter which political community refugees participate in and, and do you see... To what extent does the normative desirability of refugees voting in their state of asylum depend on them not being able to vote in their country of origin? So, If they were able to participate in voting in their home country, would that, for you, in any way change the necessity or the normative desirability of voting in the state of asylum, and and how interchangeably do you see those political communities, if you like? Um, So That was the first point I wanted to mention. And the second one was was picking up on the protection ideas in the final chapters, where you uh, very well talk about the, the role of protection in refugee law, of course, and you make that link or connection with diplomatic protection, with the access to protection abroad, with refugees' protection, as I understood it, through being able to participate in, in voting. So it seemed that you were arguing that The extension of the right to vote for refugees was another form of the legal protection which refugees are accorded as having refugee status under the Refugee Convention. And you were also making an argument that refugees could strengthen their protection by exerting political accountability, that if they were able to participate in a vote, that they would be able to exercise political accountability and and kind of vote in, if you like, the politicians who were most supportive of their interests. And it certainly seemed that that political accountability argument would, would follow, because refugees tend to be geographically clustered, so they're quite likely to be able to influence votes and to swing seats and to have actually a considerable influence if they were to be um, given the vote. So this question of protection, I thought, was a bit double-edged because you have the, the protection in the sort of legal sense of extending the package of rights which we grant to refugees, but you also had the protection implications of putting refugees into a a politically influential position, which could also bring risks along with it. So, if refugees are able to vote, then what kind of uh, kind of power consequences might follow from that? And, of course, you're familiar with the sort of basic facts about refugee residents. So, the majority of refugees are in developing countries. The majority of refugees are in countries in close proximity to their country of origin. Um, Often in areas where there are regional aspects to conflict which are linked to things like identity and political affiliation and the sort of issues that are often very um, at the heart of election processes. So from that point of view elections can also be a flashpoint for insecurity and for uh, physical risks. And we often see the manipulation of blocks of poor people through vote bank politics, as it's called in in India. So the idea that certain constituencies are manipulated and exploited to vote in a particular way. So those kind of dynamics that go alongside elections in many contexts. I just wanted to kind of push you a little bit about whether you thought enfranchising refugees could bring with it this risk of enhancing vulnerability, even as it arguably extends the scope of legal protection, and whether you thought that does or should in any way change the normative desirability of providing a right to vote, should we factor this into our analysis of how normatively desirable it is. Mm. So those were my key questions, Mm. but a really fascinating read
2: and a very thought-provoking book. Thank you. Thanks
4: very much.
2: Thank you. Do you want to take all the comments together? Uh, yeah, I think so. <clears> thank
5: <throat> you. Well, I don't know whether to laugh or cry because you've just um, stolen many of my comments <laughs> and said them much better. So thank you. We should stay in the legal box for a while because um, I'm the kind of <clears throat> definitely the non-lawyer here. Um, uh, let me say thank you for inviting me today, and it was a great pleasure to read this book. It's, uh, the Voting Rights of Refugees is a refreshing and, I think, original piece of work that helps us look at the entitlements of refugees in new ways. It's also, at least from my perspective, a subtle piece of legal scholarship that teases out new implications from the 1951 Refugee Convention. And the book is also uh, more or less explicitly at various times and intelligently argued piece of normative uh, political theory that specifies, I think, a distinctive uh, moral case for vesting voting rights with uh, refugees. So in this, the short time that I have, what I want to do is explore some of the implications and force of Ruby's position to push it a little bit um, from a position that um, is not legal, but looking more at the uh, implications and the consequences of it and some of the normative dimension of it, so partly from the perspective of political theory, and I'll leave the legal debates where they belong, in the hands of the lawyers. Um, Now, as you're probably aware, there's been an ongoing and vibrant discussion in normative political theory in recent years about the question of non-citizen voting, and this has been contributed to by a lot of different scholars, including Joe Carens, Rainer Baubach, uh, and David Owen, and Dora Kostoloplu who was going to be here today, and a typical kind of liberal democratic position that goes back at least as far, um, and goes back actually further, but at least as far to Michael Waltz's 1983 work, Spheres of Justice, is, um, is that the demos of a state should rightly include all people regularly subject to the coercive authority of that state. A state that rules over people without recognising them as political members is a tyranny, not a liberal democracy. Now, I think uh, Ruby's book, Voting Rights, is an important contribution to this ongoing discussion. And he enters it, uh, Ruby does, with his own distinctive uh, position. Um, He doesn't reject the argument for democratic inclusion on the basis of a mixture of arguments from legitimate coercion and from residents. But he makes two important claims that impact upon the broader um, debate. The first is that 1951 convention refugees have the strongest claim of all non-citizens to be included as voting members in the demos of their new state of residence. Um, Their case for inclusion has, uh, and and these are my own words, priority over that of irregular migrants temporary workers, students, and presumably other permanent uh, residents. Ruby's position on this distinctive position of refugees emerges from the situation of, and I think you borrowed this from David Owen, the civic did, limbo did, yeah. of refugees. The civic limbo situation that they find themselves in. They, rena- um, they rely uniquely Um, on their current state of residence for protection and for security and they manifestly lack the ability to return to their country or citizenship in um, any meaningful sense. Now a second distinctive claim and I hope I've got this right and we'll see what Ruby ends up saying to this, is that this um, situation of limbo can't be satisfactorily addressed by simply by liberalising nationality rules and incorporating refugees into citizenship in the um, asylum state. Uh, Rather, in uh, Ruby's terms at least, we need to disaggregate the right to vote from the status of citizenship. And um, in many cases, according to Ruby, citizenship in the modern state is the good end point for um, refugees. It's the proper end to the refugee experience but it need not be and even when it is not refugees should still have the right to vote so the right to vote becomes independently in some respects of that claim even though they may be practically connected in some ways so depending on the way that one looks at it in terms of ruby's work his claim for the rights of refugees to vote might be almost irrelevant or stunningly consequential, and let's, let me explain what I mean by this. On the one hand, the effectiveness of refugee vote, voting rights are going to be dependent on the ability of refugees to, loo- um, to um, use them in the political structures in which they find themselves. Now, around 80% of the world's refugees find themselves in uh, developing countries, And if we take the democracy index as our guide, which I found on the web, many of the countries with the highest refugee populations in the world, including uh, um, Iran, Bangladesh, and Jordan, are um, officially classified as authoritarian states. A number of others, like Pakistan and uh, Uganda, are best considered hybrid regimes, where voting is only partly free. Nor is this necessarily a coincidence going on here. Authoritarian regimes often have more political latitude to host large numbers of refugees just because they are insulated from the kinds of domestic pressures that would constrain state elites in taking refugees. Now, in general, the lack of democracy in many uh, refugee-hosting countries may lead us then to conclude that pushing for the voting rights of uh, refugees is going to be um, lacking in purpose or perhaps rationale just in those countries where it might be needed most. But suppose for the sake of argument, many of these countries did have systems that passed democratic muster, where the right to vote was, in fact, uh, meaningful. Then I think another challenge um, emerges, and Kirsten started to get into this area, and I'll say a little bit about it here. The impact of refugees upon the Demos, upon the state, uh, might be quite profound. Hmm. Where refugees exist in very large numbers, they would introduce as a matter of course, I think, into democratic politics, a range of new preferences and interests that could radically reshape these uh, societies. Their voting may lead to uh, pressures for very different public policies than those currently chosen by the citizenry, on matters that might concern things like welfare provision, the distribution of public goods, or even in the realm of foreign policy as well. Indeed. I think it's possible that citizens under these circumstances um, might see these new voters as effectively constituting a kind of foreign takeover of their democratic system. That could be the danger here. Now, if this seems unlikely, I I refer again to the case of Lebanon. which hosts 1.5 million Syrian refugees and has a total population of around 7.5 million. So we do come back to this question of what happens in these kinds of circumstances. So clearly in certain circumstances, the right to vote may not simply involve empowering refugees. It may be perceived at least as disempowering the citizenry as it existed before then. Now, this isn't to suggest that your argument is normatively invalid. I mean, one feature of normative arguments is is potentially that we could have justice though the heaven falls, potentially. Um, But it is merely to point out that some states, and paradoxically, the most generous states when it comes to refugees, are likely to face very profound Effects here, and there's likely then to be strong opposition. And this raises the normative point of what states should be expected to sacrifice for the sake of recognising refugees. Um, All right, what about then uh, the central claims of this work as I've defined them the idea that refugees have a powerful claim to uh, democratic. Um, inclusion um, and the position that voting rights and citizenship should be unbundled well let me start with the first I think that Ruby is absolutely right to link moral priority in um, enfranchisement um, in voting to uh, those in civic limbo unable to return to their country of citizenship my main problem with this um, is that he seems to see see throughout the book as this group as coterminous with the legal category of the 1951 convention refugee. And here I think there's the potential for some tension between the legal and the ethical focuses of the work. Uh, While I can see a practical case for for, uh, using the legal categories we currently have, the moral case, I think, is less clear. It seems to me that the case of, of, um, or the circumstance of civic limbo, is not simply limited to Convention refugees. It might equally describe those who cannot return home on um, other human rights grounds, who may be excluded or not captured by the Convention. It may also be applicable potentially to those that cannot eke out a living in their home country because of dire economic conditions there that strangle their ability to be uh, civil actors there as well. And I also wonder, given the argument of the book, um, whether it might include individuals from authoritarian countries who cannot effectively vote in the country that they've come from. Um, and that's a question of connecting up the right to vote back with the refugee definition, I suppose. Now, at various moments in the work, I think RUVI invests a little uh, too much confidence in the Convention as a, ca- um, as a category for exhausting the idea of civic um, limbo. And in a number of places, you do tend to contrast refugees purely with uh, voluntary migrants who can return home. Um, And this raises the question of whether this kind of binary is really up to the complexities of uh, most non-citizens in many countries in the world today. In many European states, for example, um, non-citizens include a range of different people that may be alienated to various degrees from their um, home country, that lie somewhere between this idea of the refugee and this idea of the voluntary migrant, if there is such a thing as the voluntary migrant at all. And some people sure. would debate that, too. Now, this point is not a huge criticism of Ruby's argument, because I think it may just be a way of extending the analysis yeah. in uh, normative uh, terms and show the fruitfulness Of the idea and that is the way that I would take it Um, but I think there is a need to kind of develop that um, normatively over time let me just finish by talking about the second prong of the argument the idea that voting rights should be disaggregated from citizenship now Ruby here provides some ingenious arguments for what seems in some respects like a counterintuitive position Uh, he notes the gap between the grants of um, refugee status and naturalisation can be very long in temporal terms, thus exacerbating this period of vulnerability or civic limbo over time. He notes that refugees are entitled uh, to be enfranchised even if they don't want uh, national citizenship or don't necessarily want to take up that particular right. And he notes that refugees from countries forbidding dual nationality should not be asked to give up their original citizenship for the sake of a democratic role in their new country. Now, um, these, I agree, completely are genuine problems, even if I'm not completely sure that um, unbundling is necessarily the best way to deal with them. Faster naturalisation, which is something you do talk about, and rules forbidding the, uh, potentially (coughs) forbidding the, Uh, withdrawal of nationality from refugees may be more fruitful and less disruptive routes. But I have a deeper um, worry too, and that is that there's a a risk here of overlooking the ballast that citizenship provides the right to vote. Um, I think the permanence of citizenship reduces the ability of elites, and we come back to Kirsten's point here again, I think, to play around with the composition of the demos in ways that might serve their political goals. Um, Once someone becomes a citizen, it's very difficult to take away their right to vote, and it's very difficult to take away their citizenship. Increasingly, it's not impossible, but it's difficult. Um, The same is not true of permanent residents Or perhaps other non-citizen statuses. They have the potential to be much more easily manipulated through the normal workings of the law. Hostility to the voting intentions of refugees might might serve, I think, um, as the basis for politically inspired attempts to invoke, for example, the cessation clause. I would be worried about things like that. Um, Actions and it should be said this isn't completely hypothetical because actions to manipulate the Demos are not unheard of even when the right to vote is firmly tied to citizenship. Think about um, the way that Republican politicians in the US have benefited from the felony disenfranchisement of blacks, in particular, in the southern states of the US who traditionally vote for the Democratic Party and have served to reproduce that over time. Equally, we now know that the Whitlam government in um, Australia in 1975 was hostile to accepting Vietnamese refugees, largely on the grounds that um, they felt, as anti-communists, they would vote for the Liberal Conservative Party in, um, um, once they came to um, Australia. Now, um, nonetheless, I feel the politicisation of the refugee would be much stronger when refugees can vote virtually automatically and when the status that enables them to do so could be relatively easily revoked or taken away through legislative pressure or um, executive acts. So I think I'll end here. Um, I apologise... If uh, this sounded like a list of things that <laughs> worried me mm-hmm. as I read about the voting rights of refugees, I think the best books are disturbing. They do make us worry. They make us reflect upon these questions because they challenge conventional assumptions and traditional pieties. And in my view, this is one of the best books I've read on refugees in recent times.
3: Thank you. All right. Well,
2: well thank you. This is. Um
3: There'll be a lot for you to take on, Ruby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'll see, yeah, we'll like see. I'll hear your response. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm quite keen to, uh, um, to, to to get to get some more responses, but I'll, I'll I will try to do justice to to many of the points. There are actually some some points where uh, where in a sense I think some of Matt's comments. Um, Provided part of the answer to Kirsten, uh, but I'll but I'll I'll try and sketch those out. Let me start with the easiest ones, which were kind of on the uh, on the starting point. So, which I think illustrate some some of the the, the force of um, of legal statuses actually, and and the significance for for this project. And that's actually the example of Germany and the subsidiary protection, because part of the reason why Germany has um, gone on. Um, mostly giving subsidiary protection to syrians rather than um refugee convention status even though eu law requires to first assess whether somebody meets the refugee convention and only if they don't um as the uh, the qualification directive says explicitly do you move to check whether they meet the subsidiary protection is precisely because those two statuses provide um different entitlements in a certain um in, in certain areas and potentially the possibility um, to acquire um, citizenship in the, the German context, um, Germany is really one of those classic inseparability um, type cases uh, of when it comes to voting and citizenship, which which raised a real problem for it when it um, when the EU started um, the post Maastricht to require states to enfranchise known so citizens of other EU states in in municipal elections. That that led to a series of cases in in the court, which I described in. In a book, but but in so in Germany, um, at the moment it would be it would be unthinkable for non-citizens to vote um, in uh, in general election. But it is the case that citizenship itself, and I'll get back later to the point about naturalisation, citizenship itself is is much more easily accessible for refugees than it is for those with subsidiary protection. And the reason for this is. And it does go back perhaps to the point where Matt ended uh, or kind of a slightly cynical point about the fact that status can be you know, easily revoked or there could be manipulation with this. I mean, the assumption in the book is that states do act generally in good faith, having previously recognized somebody as a refugee under the Convention, then they would accept that if that person continues to meet the definition, then it's only really when one of the cessation clauses comes into play that status will be revoked. And given that, given that the assumption is that there has been a refugee status determination process, that the state has undertaken and has reached a decision a person is a refugee, then the fact is that for countries like Germany, it does make a normative difference whether somebody is a refugee or a beneficiary of subsidiary protection. It goes to some extent also to Matt's point about about the complexity of the, the, the binary between refugees and, 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 and voluntary migrants. And of course, I, I said at the start, and I say in the book as well, that, it's, um, uh, that, that I certainly don't see it as a binary. But I do see some important distinctions that go to the obligation that the state of asylum undertakes under the Convention. The Convention, we should remember, um, is entirely addressing the state of asylum. There's nothing in the convention that addresses other states, Uh, doesn't address the international community as a whole, except in the preamble, doesn't address the state of origin. The obligations are directed towards the state of asylum, and there's a reason for this. And that is the assumption of um, having taken um, the place of the state of of origin in the absence of um, the normal political relations that we expect from, from a state of uh, of origin and, and interestingly in the German case there is um, a recent case from the Federal Constitutional Court um, that requires um, the state to undergo that process um, when it's in, in relation to persons who are granted subsidiary protection um, require, and requires them to be granted legal aid in order to claim that they deserve refugee status rather than uh, rather than subsidiary protection, so 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 I think that's that's quite instructive. I I, I think the, the the broader point about where refugees are and what vulnerabilities they face and what is the implication on the political um, community in the country where where they reside, which was a point that both of you raised. I mean, I think th- there is a cop out that are, that I can use and I will use it as a first kind of point of entry, which is to say. The book assumes um, and says so again that um, this is not just a case of states being signatories to the Refugee Convention and implementing it, which would at the moment at least cast out countries like Myanmar and, and Lebanon, but also that they um, they do operate under effective electoral processes. Of course if the state does not have an effective electoral process for its own citizens it will be, um, it will be odd to expect it um, to, um, uh, to change only by virtue of now being, uh, uh, being a host for refugees. And so, uh, and so I think, um, to the extent that the, uh, the argument is that those states should, um, should become democracies uh, or liberal democracies in one form or another and should have effective um, uh, processes, and I think the answer would be yes. And I think it's important to note in this context um, that liberal democracies can still generate refugees, right? So I think I think the binary we often we often assume is that the fact that a state say has effective elections, has uh, is generally human rights compliant uh, means that it's quote unquote a safe country. That's of course one of the debates that refugee lawyers constantly have with bodies such as the European Union and others, which 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 makes that sort of binary and that sort of binary, of course, uh, flies in the face of the underlying assumption of the refugee convention which is that, individ- that refugee status is individual and it reflects your individual predicament uh, and that predicament may arise in um, in a, a generally uh, uh, sensible state of origin you might say. But, but this takes me to kind of the more difficult challenge I think that that came from again from Kirsten but to some extent from, from Matt in this respect as well which is um, um, are we kind of letting off the hook the state of of origin and, and is there a, uh, and is there a choice that we need to um, to make here, uh, or is there a preferred option? Is it really the case that the um, that the stronger connection is to the state of origin um, and so I think I have several answers to this that the first answer is that I do think and it goes back to why I think the refugee convention does provide the strongest case also in terms of the uh, the um, kind of international law's approach to um, to the obligations of states. It's, it is actually somewhat awkward for a refugee recognized under the Refugee Convention, perhaps in contradistinction from other forced migrants, to claim that their political relations with their state of origin is intact. Um, it is, there is something awkward, the structure of the Convention and it may be part of its restrictive natures, but it's also one of the strengths of the normative framework, is that something has been severed in that relation. It hasn't been severed necessarily permanently, which is why part of the answer isn't necessarily citizenship of the state of asylum. But it has been severed. It's not, the, the, the fact of not being able to go back is not just a practical impediment. It's a normative impediment. It's the idea that they cannot be back in a situation where their rights are protected in the way uh, we expect states to protect their citizens. So they may they may not do this to the desirable extent, but we still have that expectation. And when it comes to the state of uh, when it comes to the situation where somebody has been recognized as refugees, it's not that we let the state of origin off the hook. I mean, the, we may still reprimanded internationally, there may be potentials even in some regions for, um, um, for compensation or others. But we, it's almost like we, at that stage, direct our attention entirely to the actions of the state of asylum, because this is what the Convention asks us to do. But I think also normatively, this is what's saying logically, you have been granted refugee status and that status will be yours, until something dramatic happens. And that something is either your choice, which indicates that you have made yourself a protection or a decision to fully incorporate you into a political community permanently by citizenship, which is one that we need to be willing to offer uh, and we may not be willing to offer, but you also need to be willing to accept. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't undersell the significance of Um, not just objections to dual nationality, but other other objections to obtaining citizenship uh, and that permanent nature of relations. Um, And so absent those, um, there really needs to be a fundamental change and we don't know what that change will happen. And and you are kind of under our guardianship uh, for that period onwards. And that guardianship does mean that if you travel abroad, you don't travel on your state of origins passport, but you travel on... A uh, convention travel document that is not a requirement for other forced migrants or other non-citizens, and there's a reason it's not a requirement for others, and there's a reason it is a requirement for refugees. I mean, I would, you know, be quite, quite kind of a legal positivist on this. I think, I think if you look at your passport, it is an indication that the state on on whose passport you travel will provide you protection vis-a-vis other states. That is, that is the nature, that is how passports started. Uh, And so it would be awkward for them to use the passport of their state of origin if they are refugees. And so something needs to come in its stead. And that is is the Convention travel document. And it is a requirement of states of uh, of asylum. And I I do think then that makes the normative requirement from the point of view of the state of asylum stronger um, generally, but not necessarily weaker if they... um, if in some way or another they are still able to uh, to uh, to act politically vis-à-vis their state of origin, I mean, I think um, I think those instances are often instances, and I, I don't want to you know to get into into too much of empirical work here, but uh, but often instances where the persons haven't been recognized as 51 convention refugees, so some of the dilemmas are raised are different, but it's also often the case where we are in transition. Um, to coin a phrase, in in the Brexit era, uh, we are in in transition to um, to a change that is um, going to affect not that not just that individual, but but a wider group of individuals. So I don't know if that fully answers, but I think, uh, kind of in the interest of time, I want to to address uh, also some some of additional points that um, that uh, matters made here. Um, and I think so. So so one point kind of goes back to the. Um, to the notion of um, the effective citizenship of their state of origin and whether we should whether the the same argument would would extend to saying well are we uh, are we in the process here of compensating for somebody 's lack of opportunities in the state of origin in the sense that if they come from a authoritarian <laughs> regime they don 't have an effective access to the political process, and so we need um, so, so they're not they 're not so necessarily so um, um, Normatively different, I think t- to me it goes it goes to the way I try to construct the lack of ac- exit option and, and and coupled with with the political accountability point right so to me the, I, to me the, the notion that both sides of this equation, the refugee and the state rec- and the state of asylum, recognize that they can't go back it 's not a question and, and, and again I, I recognize it 's not a binary, but it 's still not a question of the conditions in the state of origin being less desirable than they are in other places, uh, but it's a question of a legal impossibility,
5: and right? it's a legal impossibility to return. Um, because but if that's was, true, what about someone who's excluded and is non-deportable from the state? So they can't go back because, you know, the, I mean, clearly they would face kind of Article Three standards of kind of. Um, Treatment is they're in there. I I know we've yeah. got to do that. I'm gonna percent, yeah. I'm gonna, just, I'm gonna just just interrupt just. Ruby as well. Yeah. I'm I'm yeah. I'm
2: gonna ask for some questions so I want yeah. to make sure that the aud
4: o- sure. the audience brings yeah. and I can some return, return material to material Okay, sure. we can return to that.
5: Yeah. So I'm gonna turn off to the